0: Some of us need to make a decision already and move on with our lives. And others of us need to slow down the bleed and stop making so many decisions. Being very entrepreneurial and having run companies with employees, it can be very easy to get in the mode of rapid fire decision-making because you have to, but it's critically important to take a step back sometimes and evaluate if you're making the best decision. Even decisions I have made in my life that turned out well I look back and think if I would have just taken a little more time on the nuance of that decision, I could have avoided some unintended consequences. So, whether you need to start making decisions or slow down in your decision making, here is a great test to run each decision through. I want to talk today about making good decisions when you're uncertain. In life, we are faced with many decisions that are black and white, cut and dry. But life is also filled with many decisions that are not the difference between right and wrong, but rather they are in the gray area. Even with the word gray, you have an option on how to spell it. Neither spellings are wrong, but you do have a choice. We face all sorts of these decisions in our lives. Where to live, what job to take, who to marry, how many kids to have, should we buy that new car? In fact, the very day I got married, People came up to me and my new bride and asked the question, when are you going to have a baby? And even right after having a baby, and I mean in the hospital when the baby still has that funky cheese on them, people would ask, so when are you going to have another one? Decisions, even and especially ones that have no moral quandaries to navigate can quickly paralyze us. After all, choices between right and wrong are easy to tell if they are right and wrong. It's easy to know that I shouldn't go rob a bank. I've never spent any time in the quicksand of decision over the things that are so clearly and explicitly right or wrong. It's as if the decision has been made already and we don't need to wrestle with it. Now having said that, our flesh has strong desires for wickedness, so it's always trying to pull us into making the wrong decision. And you can remember Paul in Romans chapter 7 where he describes this battle in his flesh and he says in verse 15, for what I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. We all know the tug of war that we play with good and evil. We even know when it's the smallest thing like taking too long on a lunch break and stealing company time or speeding. And whether it bothers us or not is a different question. We would call these peccadilloes or small sins. But I don't want to focus on these decisions that are clearly marked out for us as right and wrong. I'm talking about decisions that can make a huge impact on our lives that are not clearly marked out for us as right and wrong. Because you and I both know that even the most harmless decision can spiral out of control and stir up sin and hindrances in our lives. There are really just two classes of decisions to make if you think about it, first decisions between right and wrong. And by this, I don't mean what we believe is right and wrong, but what the Bible says is right and wrong. Even if we are unaware of what the Bible says, it doesn't change it from being right or wrong. But the second class of decisions are the gray area decisions. If you like to be technical, in theology, it's called a differa, which are just matters that don't touch on morals. The good news is the Bible gives us great insight into these matters. Even the decisions that aren't a sin matter the Bible helps us with. I came across the list a number of years ago, a sort of litmus test of decisions, and I wanted to share it with you because it can help so much. Some of us need to make a decision already and move on with our lives, and others of us need to slow down the bleed and stop making so many decisions. Being very entrepreneurial and having run companies with employees, it can be very easy to get in the mode of rapid-fire decision-making. Because you have to, but it's critically important to take a step back sometimes and evaluate if you're making the best decision. Even decisions I have made in my life that turned out well, I look back and think if I would have just taken a little more time on the nuance of that decision, I could have avoided some unintended consequences. So, whether you need to start making decisions or slow down in your decision making, here is a great test to run each decision through. And by the way, we need to be good at this. We cannot grow in maturity and avoid making decisions. The decisions you need to make are only up to you to make them. So let's look at the first question to ask ourselves when testing a decision. Number 1. Will it be spiritually profitable? Look at 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12. It says, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. Now, just to be clear, when Paul says, all things are lawful for me, he is saying all things that are not unlawful to me are lawful to me. This is very simple. If it doesn't violate the Bible, it's lawful for me. In other words, if the Bible doesn't forbid it either specifically or categorically, I am free to make my decision. This is what we're talking about, the free choices we get to make. Kenneth Weiss translates this verse, All good things are under my power of choice. But look at what he says next. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. The word profitable translates to bring together, and it means it is expedient, advantageous. Does it benefit me or others? We use the phrase, it's all coming together, and we know that to mean things are adding up in our favor. But if I were to say all things are coming apart, We know that this is not a good thing. So he's saying, Does the decision you're making bring things together for you or tear them apart? Does signing up for that new commitment bring things together for you and your family or does it work to tear it apart? By the way, just as a reminder, we are talking about good things, things that are lawful, things that anyone in good conscience would be fine to do. Signing up for another Bible study may sound amazing and spiritually profitable. But if it pulls you away from your struggling marriage that so desperately needs attention, is it profitable? And we play these little games in our head and we say, well, if I go to the Bible study, I can learn how to be a better spouse. All I have to say to that is skip the Bible study and do the Bible study with your spouse so you get both benefits or pick a Bible study that you can both go to. We grew up trained to do as many good, quote unquote, things as possible Because good things get star stickers on charts and lead to pizza parties. So we are so used to do, 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 but we don't have the time to do every good thing, so we must do the right good things. We need to get over this idea that we should say yes to every good thing in our lives and that good decisions should always feel good. I would say that almost the opposite is true, most often. The most difficult decisions I've made in my life have done the most good for me and have brought things together. Now remember, we are asking ourselves if it is spiritually profitable. We're not talking about things coming together for your personal gain, although that could be a byproduct. We're talking about decisions being spiritually profitable. And if you have a family, that means their spiritual benefit as well. Let me also say, don't get carried away in the opposite direction where you refuse to do anything because it isn't spiritual. Sleeping isn't spiritual, but it's necessary. Vacation with your family may not appear spiritually profitable, but does it provide an opportunity with your family that is spiritually profitable? What I'm saying is this, don't create more hazardous things in your life by being over spiritual. God created us to enjoy life in him. And so when making a decision, ask yourself, is it spiritually profitable? Number two, does it build me up? First Corinthians chapter 10 verse 23 says, all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. He goes on to say, all things are lawful, but not all things edify. This is similar to the first point, but the word edify means to build up or literally to build a house. What this means is that is the decision I'm making strengthening my foundation and my structure in Christ. Does it strengthen me spiritually or am I cutting a corner that will later cause my house to fall? It could be understood as, does this decision put me on the path to spiritual maturity? First Corinthians 14:26 says, "Let all things be done for edification. Let's look at the third test. Will it slow me down or hinder me from serving God? Hebrews chapter 12 verse one says, "Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, Let us also lay aside every encumbrance, or weight, and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. This verse mentions laying aside sin that slows us down, but notice it uses the word encumbrance, or weight. This is the same class of decisions we are talking about. They may not be a sin, but do they weigh you down? The analogy here is for a runner, and the word weight means bulk. It's talking about excess. It's talking about the things in your life that slow you down or dampen your motivation for God. Things that suck the energy out of you, making your running in the race harder than it already is. We must learn to be effective at saying no. Challenge yourself to be retrained in only doing the things and with the people that matter, because they matter. And not only do we say no more, but we must also actively lay aside every weight and all the bulk. That means shedding some things. This is more than just commitments. It can be things, too. The more stuff you buy, the more things you need to take care of. It reminds me of the hot tub I once bought, that the water looked green from the day that I took possession of it. It became just another thing I had to take care of. We are really good at taking new things on when we can barely carry the things we have. It can also be legalism. Where we add all these additional rules to following Christ that are not necessary but make us feel more spiritual. And so ask yourselves, is this decision going to end up adding unnecessary weight to my life that slows me down? Let's look at the fourth point. Will it put me into bondage? Look at 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12. It says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Anything can be your master if you let it. A classic example of this is TV, which is not necessarily bad in and of itself, but can very easily become master over you. For something to be master over you means that it is considered first before any other decision is made. Video games, food, your business, money, sports, and so on and so on can all be good things, but can also end up being masters in our lives. And so the question is, will this decision end up making you its slave? Let's look at the fifth point. Is it disguised as sin? 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 16 through 17 says, Act as free men, and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. The word covering just means veil. Is the decision you're making just an excuse to do what you want to do? And is it just a cloak covering the sin underneath it? You can say, I am free in Christ to do what I'd like to do, but don't use your freedom as a cover for your sin. There's certain things you know you shouldn't be watching because it feels wrong, but because of the rating, you take liberty to watch it. I'll give you an easy one. Have you ever helped someone just to get the recognition and and attention for helping? Or here's a classic one, you go to your friend and you say, hey, we really need to pray for brother so-and-so because I heard that he's cheating on his wife. And you use your prayer as the cloak of your gossip, and you know it. Galatians 5.13 says, for you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. Let's look at the sixth question. Does it violate my conscience? Romans chapter fourteen verses one through three says, "Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat, and the one who does not eat is to not is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him." It's saying for some people it violates their conscience to eat meat, so if you were more spiritually mature and have no issue with eating meat, then don't criticize the one who doesn't eat meat. He goes on to say in verse 5 of Romans 14, One person regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord, and he who eats does so for the Lord for he gives thanks to God and he who eats not for the lord he does not eat and gives thanks to God what this is saying is that some people view things with greater importance or restriction than others because they believe it's what the lord wants and if their desire is to please the lord then with these things then they are fine to do so and shouldn't be criticized it's a matter of personal conscience and you shouldn't violate your conscience you see If we violate our conscience, we will never be able to trust it again, which is dangerous because it's a guide for us. There are some things that violate your conscience. It's that feeling that something just isn't sitting right about your decision or situation. It may have nothing to do with right or wrong, but in your effort to please the Lord, you have to follow your conscience without using it as an excuse or a cloak to cover sin. Let me say this again. This doesn't always mean sinful things. That's the whole point. Sometimes your conscience is telling you to stay put. Don't take the job. Don't move. Or do move. None of these things are bad things. But if your heart is to please the Lord and you get a check in your conscience, then listen to it. 1 Corinthians 4, starting in verse 4, says, For I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted. But the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes who will both bring light to the hidden things in darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts, and then each man's praise will come to him from God. He's saying, I am not violating my conscience, and so I do not pass judgment, but I trust the Lord who examines my motives. You see, motives matter in gray areas. Let's look at the next one, number seven. Is it a good example to other believers? Look over at first Corinthians chapter eight, starting in verse nine. It says, But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you who has knowledge, dining in the idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. And so By sinning against the brother and wounding their conscience, when it is weak, you sin against Christ. For example, if I have a brother in Christ that came out of alcoholism, I'm not going to have a beer in front of them and potentially cause them to stumble, even if I having a beer is no big deal, because I've never had a problem with it. Let us not be so arrogant in our freedom and say, I don't care what others think, I answer to God. Well, in the particular case that it offends another believer, verse 12 says you sin against Christ by making them stumble. So we must ask ourselves if the decision we are making is a good example for weaker believers. Next, is it a good witness to unbelievers? Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And before we read it, let me set the stage. You have two believers. One who is strong and free and has no problem eating meat offered to idols, while the other one is weak and and it violates his conscience. In these times, people would bring sacrifices to lay on the altar of their idols. Many times these sacrifices were food because it's what the people had. There would have been hundreds of people giving food as a sacrifice. However, the food would just rot away if nothing was done with it. So the priests would come and they would take all the food and they would eat what they wanted and the rest of it they would turn around and sell. It became the temple butcher shop. They got all this free food and they would turn around and sell it for a profit. In fact, if you lived there during those times, it's most likely that you would be doing your shopping there as well. Because if you wanted a great deal on some meat, you would go to the temple butcher. So the mature believer says, what's the big deal? I'm being a good steward over my finances and purchasing great quality meat at great prices, I have no qualms with eating meat offered to some dead idol. But imagine the weaker believer, who just came out of that pagan religion that was filled with cultic worship, orgies, temple prostitutes, and all sorts of immoral things. Suddenly, the meat the more mature believer has no problems with is highly offensive to the new believer. Even the smell of it reminds them of the gross sins they were involved in. And in this passage, the mature and weak believer have a friend in common that is an unbeliever that they are invited to eat with. Look at 1 Corinthians 10, verse 27. It says, If one of the unbelievers invites you and you want to go, eat anything that is set before you without asking questions for conscience' sake. In other words, don't ask the unbeliever where he got his meat. Just be gracious and eat it for the sake of your witness to them. It makes me think of an instance a long time ago going to an elderly woman's house from our church to help with something. And after finishing up, she offered us coffee. As a coffee lover myself, I couldn't turn it down. After brewing the coffee, I watched her reach into the refrigerator and pull out a hair products container and pour it into my cup. I still don't know what to this day what was in that container because it wasn't coffee creamer. I decided to drink that day and I live to tell you the tale. All joking aside, look at verse 28 of 1 Corinthians 10 again. But if anyone says to you, this meat is sacrificed to idols. So what's happening here is the unbeliever comes out and says, look at this wonderful roast I've made. I got it at a bargain from the temple butcher shop. Now the mature believer is in a real sticky situation here. On the one hand, he doesn't want to offend the unbeliever. And on the other hand, he doesn't want to offend the weaker and new believer. Does he choose to offend the unbeliever or the weaker believer? So what does he do? Keep reading. He says, Do not eat for the sake of the one who informed you and for conscience sake. I mean, not your own conscience, but the other man's, meaning the new believer. He's saying, don't offend the unbeliever for the sake of your witness. But if it comes down to offending the unbeliever or a weaker believer, you should choose to offend the unbeliever. You say, how in the world does that make any sense? Because if you choose to offend the weaker believer, the unbeliever will say, it's better that I just remain an unbeliever because these supposed brothers just go on offending each other. It is the consideration and love for a fellow believer that could be the greatest witness to the unbeliever. But if you go against your fellow believer, what kind of loyalty are you showing amongst believers? So ask yourself if your decision is a good witness to unbelievers. And if it comes down to an unbeliever or a weaker believer, then choose to offend the unbeliever. Let's look at number nine. Very straightforward and simple. Is this something Jesus would do? We've all heard this, the famous saying, "What would Jesus do? First John chapter two verse six says, "The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked." Lastly, number 10 will it glorify god 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 31 says whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do do all to the glory of god many times our decisions aren't about right and wrong but about what brings god the most glory can you bring god the most glory by doing what you want to do or by choosing not to do something choose the things that bring him the most glory And so when we are facing decisions where the answer isn't clear, run it through this 10-point checklist. Will it be spiritually profitable? Does it build me up? Will it slow me down or hinder me from serving God? Will it put me into bondage? Is it disguised as sin? Does it violate my conscience? Is it a good example to other believers? Is it a good witness to unbelievers? Is it something that Jesus would do? And finally, will it glorify God? We need to get comfortable with making decisions because we face them every day. Some are clear cut and dry, but others require a little bit more consideration. I hope this list helps you as it has helped me.